0: Oh, what a joy to be with you this morning. Um, sound guys, I know you guys are great. You guys do a wonderful ministry, but this is going to get loud. So I just want to just warn you. Uh, what, a, what a joy to be with you this morning. I, I uh, have had the privilege and the honor of praying for you since the beginning. Uh, I remember hearing about the church when it first started and, and just started praying for you in, in earnest, asking the Lord to bless the, the church And uh, and here we are, three years later, praise God. So happy birthday, Church, Grace Hill Church. What a joy to be with you this morning. And I I, uh, bring you greetings from Grace Bible Church in Roseville. Um, We pray for you often. We think about you often and pray for you often. And uh, um, so I'm glad to be able to come and be with you this morning and see faces that uh, I've been praying for. I I don't know you, but through Christ, I, I love you. Uh, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and so I have been praying for you that God would continue to show you uh, his grace through Christ, and so um, what a joy that uh, Maria and I have to be with you this morning. My, I have uh, four children. Um, <clears throat> one is uh, married and is with her in-laws in Kansas, and the other three are serving um, back at Grace Bible Church in Roseville, and so they couldn't be here with us this morning, although they wanted to be um, so, this morning, I thought we would open up to the book of Titus. So, if you would turn to me to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read chap, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 15, the entire chapter. But our focus this morning will be on verses 11 to 15, or 11 to 14, really. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. That they may encourage young women to love their husbands, to Love their children to be sensible, pure. Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. In order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we gather this morning to give you glory. To think thoughts that bring glory to you, to make much of you in our own minds, so that our hearts would grow in affection for our Savior, so that we might live out this truth that you lay before us. And so, Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would be with us this morning and you would grant us minds that are illumined to the Scripture. that you would grant us the grace to understand your word and to understand how we might apply it in our own lives. God, I ask that you would hide me behind your word. Let Christ have preeminence this morning, God. And that, Father, through the preaching of your word, your people would hear your voice and live for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's a story told about Jonathan Edwards, a great American preacher and one of the key leaders in the first great awakening. He had a daughter who had an uncontrollable temper. He had 11 kids. One of them had an uncontrollable temper. Well, there was a young man who fell in love with her and he sought her hand in marriage, courted her, and got to the point where he really wanted to have her hand in marriage. So he went to Jonathan Edwards and he asked for her hand. And Edwards said, you can't have her. And the young man said, but I I, I love her. Edwards said, you can't have her. But she loves me. Edwards said, you can't have her. And he was just... Beside himself. And he says, why? Why can't I have her? Edwards looks at him and says, because she's not worthy of you. And the young man says, but she's a Christian, isn't she? Yes, she's a Christian. But the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. What a What a way. <laughs> What a way to say the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. What a way to say that God's grace reaches even the most vile sinner. There was another great preacher, a man by the name of Alexander White, a Scottish preacher. And he once said from his pulpit in in Edinburgh, he said, I have discovered the most wicked man in Edinburgh. The congregation's on the edge of their seat, listening very carefully. Wondering who is the most wicked man in Edinburgh? Alexander White looked at the congregation and said, His name is Alexander White. The theme of our text this morning is one of my favorite doctrines in all of Scripture the grace of God. You have it in the very name of the church. We have it in the name of the church where I serve. And while it is a theme of our text this morning, It ought to be the theme of every Christian's life. But we get distracted, don't we? What distracts us from understanding God's grace? Well, it could be a number of things, but chiefly, I think, is a lack of awareness of your own sin. You see, Alexander White understood his own sinfulness, which is why he can say that he was the most wicked man in all of Edinburgh, the city where he served. Christian, let me ask you a question. Are you aware of your own sinfulness? Do you tend to overlook your own sin while paying close attention to the sins of those around you? In other words, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You see, it isn't until we understand the vileness of our own sin that we will understand the doctrine of the grace of God. Our text this morning comes on the heels of those first 10 verses that we read in chapter 2. And there we see that Paul commands Titus to to teach. What does he teach? To teach sound doctrine. Verse one of chapter two, but as for you speak the things or or teach these things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Why Why does Paul tell Titus to do that? Well, you just look at the verse right before it. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Well, who is Paul talking about? Well, jump up to verse 10. Of chapter 1. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they were upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Now, here's what's happening. Paul, at some point in his ministry, traveled to Crete. He leaves Titus there because he sees how bad the churches are. The churches were in bad shape. There were rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, who came in acting as if they were teachers of scripture. And yet they were, Paul says, upsetting whole families, teaching teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Look at verse 12. One of them a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And notice what Paul says, this testimony is true. He says that this is, this is what the, the Cretans were like, the people on the Isle of Crete, this is what they were like, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So Paul says, for this cause reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. That's who Paul is talking about in verse 16. These ones who came in, who are teaching things they ought not to teach. So what's the solution? When you have a bunch of churches on the Isle of Crete and those churches are not doing well and there's, there's, there's just trouble and they're filled with people who are looking after their own gain, what do you do? What's the solution, Paul? Sound doctrine. And praise be to God, you have men who are standing in this pulpit every Sunday who are giving you sound doctrine. They're giving you sound doctrine. Because Paul tells Titus to teach the sound doctrine to, to older men. He tells them to teach even the, the older women. And then the older women are called to teach the younger women. And what happens? They're all transformed. Look at, at, at the different qualities. They're older men are temperate, dignified, sensible, verse 2 of chapter 2. Sound in faith in love and perseverance. Older women are reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips not enslaved to much wine. They they teach what is good. The the young women love their husbands, love their children, sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. You see, what happens when sound doctrine goes out into the church, it has a rippling effect throughout the church. And there's a transformation that happens. And you have a healthy church. So the, the church at Crete, Paul was saying, you got to move from an unhealthy church into a healthy church. And the way you do that is through sound doctrine. You see, that's what sound doctrine does. If sound doctrine is learned, loved, and then lived, it grows a healthy church. So our text this morning is the ground for what we see." In in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. And really even carries us all the way back into chapter 1, verse 10. In chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10, we have all these commands, all these imperatives. Well, here in verses 11 to 14, we have the indicative, the statements of fact about Christ that lead to a faithful life in Christ. And we see that throughout scripture, and particularly in the New Testament. We often see where commands are given, there's a truth that compels that obedience. You see it, for example, in Romans. We have a number of statements of fact, indicatives in chapters one through 11, and then chapter 12 starts out with, therefore, do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It, there, there's a, there's a, a compelling because this truth is here before you. This fact is absolute truth. Now go live it. We see that in scripture all the time. Where there are commands to be obeyed, there's always a truth to be loved. And that truth compels us to obedience. My prayer for you this morning, Grace Hill Church, is that the Lord will use his word in your life to remind you of his astounding grace in Christ so that your affection for Christ would deepen your obedience to Christ would broaden so in our text this morning we're looking at verses 11 to 14 we're going to see three things here love how paul likes to set up the text so that we can give good pastoral outlines so our text this morning we're going to see first of all god's saving grace god's saving grace and then secondly we're going to see god's sanctifying grace God's saving grace, God's sanctifying grace. And then third, we're going to see God's spurring grace. Spurred on to good works, in other words. God's saving grace, God's sanctifying grace, and God's spurring grace. First thing we see, verse 11, is God's saving grace. We see the Savior who is called grace. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. When Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared, He's referring to the fact that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have the embodiment of God's grace. That in Christ, we have grace embodied, God's grace embodied. That's what this word appeared is trying to to, to communicate, to teach us. Remember, Jesus Christ came into the world full of what? Grace and truth. He, he, He was, if I can say it this way, he was a walking God's grace. He was God's grace personified. Now understand, this isn't saying that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, like some people say, and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. not saying that at all. In fact, we know from Hebrews 11, of all those Old Testament saints who walked by faith, and that faith is a gift from God. So we know that they were sinners saved by what? Grace. So we're not saying that the Grace is a new thing when the New Testament comes in. It's simply saying that this grace is manifested in Christ. This grace that we see in the Old Testament is now manifested in Christ. And so the Savior comes and he is God's grace to his people. Now notice the, the, the scope of this grace For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Bringing salvation to all men. Does this mean that all will be saved? Obviously not. In the context, Paul just spoken of various groups, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves. So when he goes on to say that God's grace brings salvation to all men, he means to all all types of people, including those whom the world despises, even, even the slaves. That is to say, like Edwards, Edwards was just echoing Paul's statement here, that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No matter how vile you may think you are, friend, if you're here this morning and you don't call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, no matter how vile you think your sin is, God's grace reaches down and pulls you up and says, Come you're not beyond the reach of God's grace. The Bible is very clear that there are two separate destinations for all people. Those who by God's grace believe in Jesus Christ, the savior will see his face. Those who do not believe in Christ will be eternally separated from God in hell. But that's the good news of God's grace, isn't it? That no sinner is beyond the reach of his grace. The Apostle Paul, of course, was a persecutor of the church. In fact, he, Alexander White, was just echoing the Apostle Paul's words because Paul called himself, what, the chief of sinners. But he experienced God's grace through the cross. See, Paul says that God's grace brings salvation to all people. Jesus said, I have, come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, it's being made aware of your own sin. Understanding your own sin. And this grace saves. This is why we gather on a Sunday morning, isn't it? This is why we sing songs like that. I mean, if, 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 if it wasn't for Christ, <clears throat> would you be <clears throat> gathering in a room together to sing songs? I mean, unless you're doing karaoke or something, you wouldn't do that. But here we are, different age groups, different ethnicities, and we gather in a room to sing these songs. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to us. But not only does God's grace save us, but it also sanctifies us. That's where we see God's sanctifying grace here. Look at verse 12. Instructing us, To deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. The word here for instructing, in verse twelve, it's a word that doesn't merely speak of educating, doesn't merely speak of teaching. It actually speaks of child training, and when you think about raising your children. And you think about instructing your children, instruction doesn't merely come from you sitting them down and giving them the ABCs and the one, two, threes. Instruction comes when, well, they do something they shouldn't be doing. And you say, well, in our house, this is what we used to say to our kids, "Um, go to your room, we're gonna have a talk. And have a talk meant, you know, discipline. That's 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 how it was in our house but that was instruction for them. That's how we instructed them was not only through giving them knowledge, but through correcting them, through disciplining them. And that's this word here. We are instructed by God's grace. It's a grace that instructs us, not only by teaching us, but it also corrects us. It also disciplines us. It's a process that begins at salvation and and continues until we are before the Lord. Now, Paul mentions three ways that grace instructs us. Notice: instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. First of all, grace instructs us to deny ungodliness. It instructs us to deny ungodliness. The word for deny, it's a strong word. It means that you utterly reject this. You utterly reject this. See, when you experience the grace that is found in Christ Jesus, when you are made aware of your own sinfulness and you're made aware of of how you have offended an infinitely holy God, You're going to reject everything that kind of wants to pull you back into that life. And you know that there are so many things that try to pull you back into that life. Live live that way again. Remember how good life was before you were a Christian. That's a lie from the pit. But it happens, doesn't it? Paul tells us, grace instruct, instructs us to deny ungodliness. We say no to ungodliness. Now this, this word for ungodliness, it, it refers to uh, someone who, who lives simply by ignoring God. Some of you can relate to that. I know I can before God saved me. I, I lived the life, that I, I, I grew up as a, as a, in, a, in the Roman Catholic Church. I was at church every Sunday. Went to church every single Sunday, but it meant absolutely nothing. I actually went to church to go check out the girls. That's why I went to church. I would stand in the back and I would check out the girls. That's what I did. Obviously, I was as wicked and evil and ungodly as as anybody. See, that's the ungodly person a person who just completely lives a life that ignores God, even though they might have the same look, there might be somebody in this room right now who's living a life that completely ignores God. The Bible calls you ungodly. The ungodly are the ones who are openly immoral or or evil, but they're also ones who are outwardly nice people, but inwardly they have no place for God. Not only do we reject ungodliness, but we also say no to worldly desires. This is a reference to desires that, that are characteristic of the world system. It's what John, the apostle John says, that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life Includes things like selfishness, pride, greed, lust, living for sinful pleasure, rather than finding pleasure in God. And this grace of God, it instructs you, it trains you to say no to these things. There's a, a sermon by a Puritan a guy by the name of Thomas Chalmers. And the the sermon is titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's one of my favorite sermons that that I've ever read. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. What the sermon is basically, what the sermon says is that when you have a new affection, it squeezes out affection for other things. When I chose to set my affection on my wife, Maria, I didn't have any interest in anybody else. She was just, everything to me, humanly speaking. I, I didn't have any interest in talking to anybody else. I just wanted to talk to her. I, I'd, I'd be at, at work and I'd be at lunch and I'd call her up. Spend my whole lunch hour talking to her. And then I'd, I'd get home from work and I'd call her up. Or we'd, we'd go out. When you have a, a new affection, it squeezes out. Affection for all of the things. And Chalmers argues in the sermon, grow in your affection for Christ. Because as you grow in your affection for Christ, it squeezes out affection for this world. It makes all those affections for this world go away. And, 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 And let's be honest, there are some attractive things in the world. There are some shiny objects in the world. The world likes to throw all kinds of attractive things at you to say, hey, if you just, if, if you just give yourself over to this thing, then, then 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 you can have this. If you just kind of follow the world, then you can have this. The world likes to throw a lot of attractive things, and if your love for Christ is so new, it'll just squeeze that out, and you'll just go, "Nope, not interested." But if your love for Christ is just kind of waning, and you're not even you're not even thinking about Christ. In fact, your your Bible sits on the on your nightstand and gathers dust until you come to Sunday. You know you 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 pick up your Bible on Sunday. You go let <laughs> me get the dust off, so everyone thinks I was reading my Bible this week. You're not going to be able to fight those temptations, those worldly desires, but this grace. Again, it's Christ. This grace that's in Christ, it, it drives you away from worldly desires and gives you a desire to live a life that is pleasing to God because your eyes are fixed on Christ and nothing distracts you. You know, when, uh, I, I um, growing up, I played a lot of basketball. It was one of my favorite sports. And uh, one of the things that they used to do in, in our, my, on my high school team is when you would shoot the basketball, the coach would hit you with something. He just took, would take something and he would hit you with a plastic bat or something. And what was he trying to do? He was trying to distract you. He was trying to distract you from shooting the ball. Shoot the ball, shoot the ball, and he just keep hitting you. Keep hitting you. And you're just shooting the ball. You see, that's what the world does. You're trying to shoot the ball, it keeps trying to hit you. But you you gotta let all that go. Now, it's gotta be said, there there are some hard things that happen in life. And those things try to pull your eyes away from looking to Christ, from reminding yourself of this grace that's in Christ Jesus. But the more you see Christ, the more you see what he has done for you, the more you're just going to say no to the world and worldly desires. But even more than that, this grace instructs us to live, notice, sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. It's not enough to say no to ungodliness. It also instructs us to say yes to being sensible, that is to be self-controlled or to be righteous or or to, 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 to live godly lives. And we do that right now. That's not something, by the way, you say, I'll do that later. For those, of you, for those of you who are young people, you young people, sometimes you have this thought of, you know what? I'm just a teenager or I'm just in my 20s. I'll get to that when I'm married. I'll get to that when I'm married and have a family. No, no, this, the, the, the word says you do it now in this present age. You live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Right now, that's what this grace trains you to do. It trains you, not only to reject, not only to run from, but to run to. See, a lot of times when you run deal with your sin, you run away from it, but you don't run to anything. Here, it's saying, not only do you run away from the world, but you run to Christ. Christ. You don't just reject your sin. You reject it because your love for Christ is, is so overwhelming that you don't want to love anything else. That's what this grace does. But notice this grace also encourages us. Notice what it says in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that while we're being trained, while we're being trained by this grace, this is what it looks like. We wait. We wait for our blessed hope. Paul here uses a a, a participle. Looking. That's the word waiting. Waiting. And he uses the participle because it's a word that's used to describe believers. We are a waiting people as believers. That's who we are. It's a word that describes who we are. We're waiting. But let me say this. We're not like the people who wait at the DMV. Okay? How many of you have been waiting at the DMV? Anybody? It's miserable it is absolutely miserable to wait at the EMV, right? We're not like that. We're not anxious. We're not angry. That's not the the, the waiting that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about eagerly anticipating. Turn over to Luke chapter two. Luke chapter two. Look at verse 25. Maybe you read this during your um, family devotions at Christmas time. Look at chapter two, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And there had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the spirit into the temple when, he, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all people as a light of, gen- of revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people of Israel. Here was an old man, and all of his life he spent looking for the consolation of Israel. This word looking is the same word used in in Titus, it's, it's the same, same principle here. You're just waiting. And so, Paul, back in Titus, says that we are a, a waiting people. What are we waiting for? The blessed hope. Well, what is the blessed hope? It's Christ coming in again. It's Christ coming again. See, when Christ first came, he, he brought salvation in grace. When he comes again, he's coming in glory. He's going to come in glory. So his second coming is the blessed hope for those who, who know him, who love him. It's when our salvation will be fully realized, right? We, we are, we are, we've been saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. Well, when he comes again, that's the the future aspect of our salvation. We will be saved, guaranteed, because we have been saved and we are being saved. There's a future aspect to our salvation, which is when Christ comes again, which is what we're waiting for. You know, I I grew up um, in a a military family. My dad was in the U.S. Navy. And um, he used to go away on ships all the time, six to eight months at a time. And as a as a little kid, I remember uh he'd go out for six to eight months, and and uh by the time that you know four or five months was was gone, as a kid, I just wanted my dad to come home. I just want I just longed for my dad to be home. And so I remember those days when when we knew, okay, dad's ship's coming in, let's go to the, let's go over to the to the to the pier and watch him come in. And I remember they'd come, the ship would come in and all the the Navy men would be standing on the deck of the ship and they'd, they'd stand at attention. And you just see all these guys standing at attention. I'd try to pick out, where's dad? Where's dad? Oh, there he is, there he is. And we just get so excited. My brothers and I, and my sisters, we get so excited. There, there he is. He's, he, he's, he's gonna be next to us soon. That's what the Christian does with Christ. We're looking and we're waiting. We're saying, come, Lord Jesus, Come. We're waiting for him with great anticipation, not again, like waiting at the DMV. We're sitting around twiddling our thumbs, getting on our phones, playing games, cause we're bored to death. No, we're about the Lord's business, waiting for the Lord's coming. Now, Look at what he says here. He says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. So here it is. We're, we're, we're looking for Christ to come. This is why, by the way, we, we, we practice the Lord's Supper, right? This is why, why we practice the Lord's Supper because not only are we remembering what Christ has done for us, but we're also preaching, proclaiming to one another, Christ is coming again. Take courage, Christian. I know life's hard. I know the world is beating you up. I know that, that you're, you're try, constantly trying to stay focused. I know it's difficult, but Christ is coming again. Take courage, Christian. That's what communion is. So we're reminding each other look, get your eyes off of the world, get your eyes off of your circumstances, and get your eyes on our Savior. Look to Christ, He's coming. Now, verse 14 is a a, a whole other sermon. But I want you to notice, verse 14 again, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now notice, here it is. Here's where this grace is brought out. That Christ gave himself for us. He, he was our substitute. He stood in our place. He was there on the cross on behalf of us. Why? Because we could never do that. Because we're so sinful, and so Jesus, being the spotless Lamb of God, He went to the cross for us. Do, do, you, do you catch that? That little word "for." It's it's in your place. He felt the wrath of God being poured forth on him because he became a curse for us, Christian, for us. Do you get that? He stood in your place. He gave himself, I love that. It was a totally, completely unselfish act. It wasn't something that he was forced to do. It was something that he wanted to do. He gave himself. He gave himself. And he gave himself for us. Notice, we're told why. In order that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. It is to say that he redeemed us. He bought us, so to speak. This idea of of redeeming us comes from the, the, the ancient slave market, as you know, where someone pays a ransom price to deliver a slave from bondage. You were once a slave to sin and Christ redeemed you from that. Notice, it's from every lawless deed. From every sin, he redeemed you from that. so that you become a people for his own possession. Now think about that for a second. What an incredible blessing that is that you belong to the God of the universe because of Christ. Think about what a blessing that is. Think about how, how incredibly awesome that is that Christ redeemed you and he is sanctifying you, purifying you, and you belong to him. You see, this this work of Christ, it guarantees that you will be sanctified. It doesn't happen right away. We're all, each of us is a work in progress, aren't we? But every day, every moment, God is making us more like Christ. You you, you may not be the perfect Christian, but let me tell you something nobody is. We're all growing, we're all being made more into the image of Christ every day, every moment. But we are guaranteed to be sanctified because that's what his redemption does, it guarantees our sanctification. Now, that takes us to God's spurring grace. Now, here's what happens. We, we, get, we, we, we receive this grace by faith in Christ, and God changes us. He purifies us. He redeems us from every lawless deed. And then we're zealous for good deeds. You see this? We are zealous. So, so the grace of God prompts us, it spurs us on to good works, to do good deeds, to, to, to serve one another. It prompts us, it, it incites us, it spurs us on to do good works, to, to, to call the brother or the sister up who's in need, to help out when there's a, a, a family in need, to serve when there's a call out to the church for service in ministry. This grace, it instructs us so much to to look to Christ that we become zealous for good deeds. Now notice, it says zealous for good deeds. It doesn't just say to do good deeds, but it says zealous. That's a different statement, isn't it? On the one hand, someone who just does good deeds, they're just out there. We don't know what their motivation is. The one who is zealous for good deeds, they're saying Christ died for me. I'm gonna do whatever I can to serve him and his people. That's what this is, this zealous for good deeds. It spurs us on to do good works. Now, let me just say this to you, Grace Hill Church. You know, the Lord has given you three years By his grace, your responsibility to one another, including your elders is to continually remind each other of this great grace that we have in Christ. It's to to give grace to one another. You may not be, you know, you may see a brother who's not living as he ought to live we're not going to just condemn that brother. We're going to come alongside him. And we're going to say, you know what? God extended grace to me in my sinfulness. When I was his enemy, he extended grace to me. I'm going to extend grace to that brother. That's what what this does. See, that's what this reminder of grace does. It allows us to extend grace to one another so that when a brother or sister is going through a hard time, we can come up to them and say, yeah, you know what? I, I went through that too. Let me walk with you. Let me link arms with you and walk with you through this troubled time. That's what grace does. And so Grace Hill Church, if if there's anything that we can take from this text, it's that, that you ought to be zealous for good deeds because of what Christ has done for you. That you see this amazing, astounding love that God has given you in Christ and you just say, I can't do anything but serve him and serve his people under his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this grace that we have in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are eagerly anticipating the return of our Savior. That we would be, like Paul says, looking, waiting, anticipating the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we are waiting, God, that we would be a people who are zealous for good deeds, serving one another, granting grace to one another, helping one another, knowing that we are in great need of your grace and knowing that we have been granted much grace in Christ. So God, may we be a people of grace. May we be people who extend your grace to one another. That your love for us in Christ would shine through each of us so that God, we would be reminded of this grace in Christ. That we would be reminded of the grace that saves us, the grace that sanctifies us, and the grace that spurs us on to good deeds. And we would do all those things, God, so that Christ might be exalted and that you might receive all the glory. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.